0: You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com.
1: Hi, Hugh. Great to be with you, Bernard. How are you doing? It's good. It's an exciting time at JFDI at the moment. We have another batch about to start in the next week or so, so things are going to get very, very busy. You have a new batch.
0: Maybe before that, uh, let me introduce you. Uh, Hugh, you are currently the CEO and co-founder of JFDI.Asia. That's correct. I call
1: it the Y Community of Southeast Asia, is oh, that right? Yeah, that's a huge honor, thank you, Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope to uh, emulate their success, but uh, it seems to be working. Oh, how many years have you started JFDR? We've been in full operation since 2012 now. So in 2012-2013, we accelerated 26 startups, uh, 21 of those are still trading. Uh, that portfolio is now worth $36 million. Um, we're really pleased because um, the total capital we put in was about half a million dollars at the beginning of that. But to be honest, I think I'm most proud of is the fact that it's created about 180 jobs. Um, I'm really pleased that there are people working and doing great stuff because of the environment that we created. It's it's not down to me and me, it's down to the hard work of the startup founders and it's down to the excellent advice of the mentors. But I guess we brought the people together and um, that I guess is our secret sauce, we always say community is our secret source, everything else is open source. So uh, that's what pleases me the most. That's an interesting one. I also want to
0: sort of um, go back a bit before 2012. In fact, I think the initial conception started in the Hackerspace Singapore with you and Ming were planning out the different ideas of incubators, and then you were trying to find the right model to actually launch this. So how much have that, from the conception, to the actual implementation and even I, I, I do remember the early days when you and me have to fundraise the, uh, for the initial first batch that was also
1: very challenging mm. yeah it's been I think the biggest change for me has been our sort of mental model of what we're doing um, when we set up there was a fantastic opportunity in Singapore there was lots of talent there was lots of government money and so on but people weren't getting together so one of the first things we did with some younger guys was to get all the tech talent as we could together in the country. We created Singapore's first co-working space, Hacker Space, and that very rapidly became a place where people who were interested in doing stuff got going. I wouldn't say they were necessarily all interested in startups. They were interested in innovation and experimenting with technology in different ways. But about the end of 2009, um, David Cohen from Techstars was brought over for the very first Echelon conference, I think. And uh, the Singapore government was trying to persuade him to set up an accelerator like Techstars in, in Singapore and he wasn't interested. He got a family, young family, and uh, he was very busy in the US. So he called me in January 2010 and said, why don't you guys do it? And offered to give us support remotely, which was hugely helpful. And since then, I think the, the, what's been interesting is that some of the stuff around lean startup, around accelerators, works straight out of the box in Asia and some of it absolutely does not work. Um, And I think I would summarize the biggest thing overall by saying that we, the biggest discovery has been, we we thought we were setting up a kind of car wash for entrepreneurs where you would stick them in kind of one end, shampoo them, rinse and repeat and then come out kind of ready to invest the other end, like a process and I think we now realize that um, that process is part of what we do but only part of it. So it's a bit like Lo at Chinese New Year here in Singapore, you know, we have this dish in the middle of the table. Um, but Chinese New Year happens around the table. It's not the lohei in the middle of the table. Um, and I think in the same way, an accelerator program is what goes on in the middle of JFDI and communities like it, but it's the community around it that's the important thing. And that's been the biggest sort of conceptual change for us. I mean, um, your team have
0: implemented the Lean Startup Model very successfully. What are the things that don't
1: seem to work as you mentioned earlier? Well, for example, um, in the U.S., people are very happy to talk about their problems. <laughs> you can say to someone, hmm, looks like you have a problem caring for your child. Um, I've got an app for that. You know, <laughs> you have this sort of discussion about problems. Now, in many parts of Asia, if you just go up to people and ask them about their problems, that's a huge loss of face. There's no way that you can do that. I think one of the things I noticed when I first came to Singapore and started giving guest lectures, for example, was that if I said to a room full of students, guys, what do you think about X?, there will be dead silence because no one wants to put their hand up. Now, if I say to the room of students, I want you to get together with the person sitting next to you, I want you to think about X, and in a minute's time, I want you to tell me what you both think about it, then that's perfectly okay. People will speak on behalf of a group of two, but they won't speak on behalf of themselves. And in the same way, I think with Lean Startup, a lot of the kind of processes that you need, the underlying process works here just as well as anywhere else, but the way you do it is different. I think the analogy I would give, and people often ask, why do I need to come to an accelerator if I'm going to do all this stuff? It's all in books. And it's a bit like learning to dance. You, know, you can learn salsa from a book. It's theoretically possible. It's just really hard. And I think what we've realized is that there are ways of doing, it's the way you do this stuff. The actual underlying methodology is all open source, but it's how you do it, how do you apply it. That's the, that's the challenging part. And that's the bit where we're discovering, bit by bit, what does and doesn't work in Asia so I guess the
0: other interesting question is how does the JFDI program structure I know initially you all started with 100 days and then recently you all have added two more components one is called discovery and the other one's called accelerate maybe you can tell me about mm, that yeah. a little bit more
1: <clears throat> Paul I wish I could draw a picture on, on sound here um, but Paul Graham publishes a kind of a a curve of the journey of the emotional journey of a startup that anyone who's been through a startup laughs when they see this picture because it's so true. So if I kind of talk you through it, the very first thing, everyone gets together in a team and you're all terribly excited about your idea, so the emotion is really positive. If you actually start doing disciplined entrepreneurship, what, what we teach, then very rapidly you find out, almost always, that the market doesn't want what you want, what, you, what your idea is all about. So you get very depressed. And there's a period he calls the trough of sorrow. <laughs> which is when most entrepreneurs give up if they're actually listening to the market. And you have lots of false starts and you think you've discovered that a business is successful but, but you haven't quite. And eventually if you keep plugging away, and it is about plugging away, eventually you will climb out, you will pivot towards something and you will find where value lies. We, I always say to our startups when they join us, <clears throat> the, you know, the difference between an MBA education and a startup education is that an MBA is all about being very clear about your goal from the start. And you need to execute your goal with the maximum uh, efficiency of use of resources and to do it with a minimum risk and the maximum return. You're clear about the goal from the start. Uh, Running a startup is different. It's much more like sailing a little ship on the sea. You're looking for a treasure island. You're looking for undiscovered value where something else has gone. And And the key thing is that you don't sink you don't kill each other and you don't run out of food and water and as long as you can keep going in your little boat searching for that treasure island so long as you keep going you will find one eventually so what we realized was that we were trying to cram that whole sort of process of being excited about an idea discovering that doesn't work pivoting and then starting to show traction we were trying to push that all into 100 days and that's pretty unrealistic uh, i realize now sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't but it meant two things first of all that the teams that were succeeding were only just starting to kind of climb out of the trough of sorrow when they left our program. And it was then typically four to five months before they'd actually close funding. So we thought to ourselves, well, actually, there's a whole period then when they're trying to build traction, when they really need acceleration, when we're not supporting them. So what if we could move the acceleration part, you know, a little bit further down the curve, three or four months down the curve? So that was the first observation. The second observation was just how difficult it is to pivot. You know, When most people get an idea, I was listening to Curtis Carlson from SR International who was talking yesterday and he says, when someone pitches you an idea, it's a bit like someone showing you their new baby. <laughs> now the reality is new babies are always kind of ugly and wrinkly and we all look at them and go, oh, what a beautiful baby, because we know that's what you're expected to say. When someone comes up with a new idea, it's the same. They want you to say, oh, what a beautiful idea. <laughs> And if you tell them the truth, which is what we do, and we say, do you know what? It's an idea. I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea whether your idea is going to work or not. And until we hear from the market, and until we have evidence, there is, nobody can tell you. So the, so the challenge is to get through people through this period of, of taking off these blinkers, taking off this, being blinded by their own idea, starting to look at the data. And we realized if we separated that part into a thing we call discover, from a part we call validate which is then pivoting into something that does work and then finally moving into accelerate and mm-hmm. then would, would have a better structure so it's discover validate accelerate that's the three parts now so how does
0: that work for say in the discovery what do the startup do when they come into
1: jfdi so we also realized that for a lot of people uh, starting up a business particularly if it's your first time is a very daunting thing in, in many parts of asia for example many people in malaysia said to us in the Philippines, you know, I want to start a business, but not only do my family think it's going to fail, but they think that when it fails, they will have to pay for me and my children to eat. And so my family are actively negative about this, and I have to be so sure before I can take this risk. I want to do it, but I want step-by-step step to do it. So we put together a 21-day program, that's JFDI Discover, when you can really discover four things. First of all, discover who is my customer, who is actually going to pay me for this. Not who's going to use my product, but who's going to pay me. Second, what problem am I solving for that customer? Um, why would they buy for you? Why do they care? And then the two last things are more kind of human. Um, the third thing is, do I actually want to be an entrepreneur? You know, given that there is this hard disciplined process where you're being knocked all the time, can I, do I actually want to take that leap? And finally, if I'm in a team of people and we've all promised to do something in 21 days, we've all promised to go out and talk to customers and do this stuff, does everyone actually follow through or do people actually not pull their weight? So what we say to people is even if you're doing a job and you don't want to quit, do this part time in the evenings, get your team together, set yourself some goals and see if you deliver the goals and see how it feels working in a disciplined way. It's a bit like signing up for a gym, being shown how to use the machines. We show people how to use all the tools that we, uh, that we use. And we say to them, do you actually want to do this? And just like a gym, two-thirds of people drop out within the first week or two, and that's good for them and it's good for us.
0: I understand you have actually implemented the discovery program in other countries other than Singapore,
1: right? Yes, like it's, Malaysia. A, it's, it's a it's a MOOC program, it's online, so we have people from all over the world. We have people in Kazakhstan, we have people in Malaysia, we have people in Singapore all over doing it with us, um, teams from Australia... Um, and uh, it's been great in that sense that we, we build a small cohort up to up to 100 teams begin the program each right, for each 21 day period. By the end of it, only a third of them are still there. And that's okay. Oh, that's about a third. So the drop-out oh, rate is about two thirds. Yeah, and, and that's we think that's good. Um, that's people who found out that they don't really want to be entrepreneurs. And that's okay. You know, Many of us think that we'd like to get slim and lovely, but all gyms in the world would close. The business model of gymnasiums is entirely dependent on people not following through on their memberships. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I agree with that. Then the accelerate phase, how does that work then? So during the, what we, there's, a, there's a middle period which we call validate. So in 21 days in Discover, you you discover, who's my customer, um, yep. you know who's not the problem, blah, blah, blah. Usually teams come out of that finding that their original idea doesn't work. So there's a period then when we say to them, you follow the, you know, you, you're clearly diligent, you're clearly a good team, you've got a great mix of skills, but the market has told you the thing you're trying to do is not going to work. So we recommend that you stay wherever you are. You can come to JFDI anytime you like, but if you're based in Philippines, India, Kazakhstan, wherever it is, probably you're better off steering, staying near your customers where costs are cheap. We will continue to support you weekly with a check in meeting online, exactly like we would do if you were here in the accelerator. But we recommend that you explore a pivot, still in the same domain of business, wherever you. are If you're doing something in healthcare, stay in healthcare. If you're in retail online, stay in e-commerce, whatever. But pivot until you've found a customer who's beginning to pay you, and then come to the accelerate program.
0: So isn't that like
1: a distributed MOOC or massive open? I think it is online it, it, course. It is what we're moving towards, I and mean, it's more it's more interactive than many MOOCs. So the, the 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 level of interaction goes up as the you know we, we haven't got infinite resources, so. During a 21 day program, there is individual support, but it's quite minimal. Once we move into the validate period, which could last anything from three weeks to three months, um, then it's more intense. Um, and we say to the teams once you can prove that you found a customer who looks likely they're going to pay, then come by all means come. There's $25,000 waiting for you, um, there's a very intensive mentoring, but let's only accelerate when we've got something to accelerate. Because if you're basically out talking to customers, there's not a lot of point in coming to expensive Singapore, lovely as it is, and and hanging around. So how do those teams, uh, how much time do you typically spend with them per week? On that validate period? Yeah. Um, So there's there's usually about a half an hour, 40 minutes of face-to-face by Skype during that validate period. Um, but there's a lot of email interaction goes on. There's also a lot of peer-to-peer mentoring. They're in a, in a Google group when they talk to each other, and one of the great things is the way that people, the people who've stuck with the programme very quickly realise that it is all about supporting insights and sharing with each other. And you know, one of the big issues we have to get over here in, Asia, here in Asia, for example, is being scared about talking about our ideas, being worried about them being ripped off. You know, we always say to people, if your idea is that easy to rip off, it probably isn't the basis of a good business because it will be copied in China within two weeks if you on. That's true. So, so share with everybody. Share what you find, your discoveries, and your problems openly, and 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 that's very positive.
0: So, anyone in Asia can actually access to those new, uh, news groups that you have set
1: up for them, or even come so to apply to your accelerator program. So, so people can come in at three levels. Um, if you have to, do, if you have not yet done any, if you don't know how to use the Lean Startup. Tools and the other tools we use, we'd recommend going through the Discover program 21 days. If you've already done lots of customer interviews, you already have a lean canvas, you already have, um, but, you, but you need to pivot, then you could come straight into the Validate phase. If you've already got um, a, a model that's starting to beginning to show like it's going to achieve traction very soon, then you could come straight into the Accelerate phase. And to be honest, we also now have teams coming in um, looking for Series A funding into the Accelerate program. We have teams that are looking for several million dollars that already have large numbers of users, but they perceive that the um, the opportunity to be in a community environment um, where they have access to investors and mentors every day will get them to Series A quicker. So it's quite a range of businesses that we're working with now. So I think the question also that comes to
0: most audience here who is listening to think about where JFDI sits within the ecosystem. I mean, in order for you all to thrive, there needs to be a robust ecosystem around you. So where do you position JFDI as and how do you perceive the rest of the ecosystems, for example, the entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists, and maybe even the industry Mm. where there is potential opportunities for collaboration?
1: Mm. Uh, I think we're a bit like a football club. If you think of Manchester United, you've got a little green patch in the middle of the stadium and there's an elite group of athletes down on that pitch. Those are our startups. Then you've got a bunch of rich guys sitting in the corporate boxes um, who are, are eating food and looking at what's going on. I guess that's a mixture of corporations and investors. Yeah, and then you've got tens of thousands of people, literally tens of thousands of people, who are hugely supportive and are cheering in the stands. And we have exactly that too. I think there's something like fifty thousand people in our database now, people who are interested in innovation, interested in entrepreneurship. We've got thousands of people follow us and follow our teams on Twitter. There are lots of people who would love to be an entrepreneur but can't quite for whatever reason. And, but they are early adopters of products, they're champions, they test stuff, they provide feedback. We have ambassadors in different countries. So there's a whole load of people in the stands, if you like, cheering. And then, of course, outside the stadium, just like a football club, you need people selling the T-shirts and the, and the frogs, in our case, and the hamburgers. And you need the under-12 league that's bringing the next generation up. So for example, on that under 12 league, this afternoon here at JFDI, we have about 40 students from SUTD, Singapore's fourth university, who are coming to us to, for a three-day three exercise over this weekend. They are going to, uh, instead of doing a final year lab project, they're going to do a start-up through the next year of their studies. And if you like, that's the under 12 league for us, you know, that's the that's the the, the pre one of the pre-feeder programs. So, I think that we recognize that we're very much part of a larger ecosystem. I guess the analogy again with a football club, there are lots of coaches out there, they're like our mentors. You know, Manchester United could not work if it weren't for the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of amateur coaches who were helping the people, you know, the young people coming up. And then, of course, you've got professional coaches who are working with the teams day-to-day. And you have a very good selection of mentors overseas. I- we do, we're very lucky. Um, we get people approaching us all the time and wanting to be mentors. Um, they regard it as, a, as an honour and uh, that's a huge, it feels like a huge privilege. We have someone full-time working on just managing that mentor relationship. What we try to help is to achieve a match between whatever they want and what startups need. So it, there's a lot of research now over the last 15 years about how mentoring works, what the psychology of it is and, and how to match mentors and mentees. One of the things that comes across is that many of us are actually coaches in life um uh, you and i are both fathers um, and uh, i think we probably in some sense coached our wives through when they were giving birth but neither of us could be a mentor for give a woman giving birth because neither of us is ever going to give birth that's right (laughs) So, so i think we would say the difference between a coach and a mentor is that a coach is someone who helps you through a process often by reflecting on what's going on and looking ahead and that sort of thing a mentor is someone who's actually been there and done it before and we have a mixture of people across all sorts of uh, areas of business who've been there and done it before, as well as people who are great coaches.
0: I, w- I was kind of interesting because I want to bring in a very interesting point that's been ongoing in a global trend. There was a question that was floated to Sam Altman who's currently mm-hmm. the president of Y Combinator. Of Why Combinator's not having uh, venture capital because mm-hmm. they are the largest source of new startups. It is very natural for them to. See the next stage, and his comment is that there is a signaling problem. So, I guess Asia is a very different place. I think Innovation Works does it differently.
1: I think they do all around, they, they basically disregard the signal problem. What are your views on that? I mean, so I think the way I understand that signaling problem for anyone who's not familiar with it is that mm-hmm. if you're an accelerator, you're creating the next generation of talent, the way to make money out of that would be to invest in the strongest teams when they finish. But if you do that, then clearly every investor is going to say, well, you've only invested in two out of 10 teams, so the rest of them must be rubbish. Now, that might not be true. It just it might be that they don't fit your investment mandate or anything else, but right. as you say, there is a signaling issue. So different accelerators around the world ha- ha- um, handle this in different ways. White Combinator actually has an extremely close relationship with several funds, with Yuri Milner's fund and with Sequoia, for example. Um, Techstars has its own fund. Uh, I forget how much it's worth now. Um, I think it made as much as $100 million. That's right. Um, Dave McClure is completely open about it, basically 500 Startups as I understand it is a fund at the end of it, it's an early stage fund that happens to run an accelerator as a kind of a shop window that sucks in people, but I don't think most people who go to 500 Startups expect much in the way of mentoring or much in the way of change to their business. And to be honest, I think the same is true for Y Combinator now. You know, Y Combinator is more like a, a shop window. It's more like a, a finishing school. Of course, there are great people around it. Of course, there are there is office hours and support everything else. But to be honest, a lot of teams are now going into Y Combinator just to be associated with the community, and that's perfectly okay. Um, it's it's providing a selection function um, and it's providing a polishing function, and um, and investors want pre-selected, polished. So you see oh, fine. But do you see that if suppose
0: hypothetically I'm sure this is not this is not to to, to put you in a tough spot, would you foresee that there is a there's a situation where JFDM might have to consider going upstream or still prefer to sit in that part where it works with the series A investors to help I mean South Asia probably is a very fragmented mm-hmm.
1: We, are, we are, it's a very good question, I mean, and, and it's one I think about almost, Meng and I think about almost every day, because the, we set ourselves three goals at the beginning of this year, was to scale up, and to do a large number of startups, to scale out and properly be JFDI Asian or JFDI Singapore. And the third one is to get sustainable. And this, this question of whether you invest at the next stage or not kind of goes to the heart of a model of sustainability. An accelerator is fundamentally, it's fundamental, it's a platform business. With many different stakeholders, investors, mentors, startups, and so on. But the but the core transaction, as Sangi Trautner would say in, on our platform, the core transaction is startups getting funded, and startups pay us for the work that we do with a small amount of equity. But we have to pay staff, and we have costs here and now in cash. Now the challenge in Asia is that the time from an uh, uh, accelerator finishing to a startup realizing value is probably four or five years. In textiles case, often it's 18 months and the valuation at which their startups are realizing value will be much higher than here in Asia. So not only are you getting money quicker back from a batch, but you're getting a larger amount back. And in fact, the, the experience of textiles has been that roughly a you know, single company exiting within 18 months is very normal and that normally pays for the cost of a whole batch. So if you like, the textiles is self-funding, it can recycle its capital. And we're not in that situation in Asia yet. And around the world, it's not alone, it's not just Asia, Europe is also facing the same challenge. Lower valuations, longer time to exit. So we're still exploring what actually is the model um, and uh, don't have a magic answer to that. We generate revenue from other sources. So we have an unfair advantage here in Singapore that Singapore is perceived to be a hub for you know, the region. It's a soft landing, it's Asia light for many companies. So we have teams from all over the world wanting now to come and be based with us. Next month, I'm going to Kazakhstan because we have about twenty Kazakhstan startups coming to be with us for a month. The following month we have about ten startups from Norway coming to be here. Um, we have um, interest from com- countries as diverse as Taiwan and Russia, all over the place, um, Europe wanting to come to understand the Asian market. so, Servicing those needs, a bit like Plug and Play does. I think you know, Plug and Play originally in, in Silicon Valley was quite um, was an accelerator and an incubator. My understanding now is it's it's a base for startups wanting to explore Silicon Valley. And there's, and I understand that Plug and Play makes most of its revenue from visiting startups, um, and that's completely legitimate. Um, it helps certainly helps us in terms of operating
0: costs. Right. So I guess we haven't really got a chance to talk about the JFdi teams that have emerge. I think we like to hear the success stories. Mm. But I think the more interesting piece is actually to learn from what happens to the startups that fail. So generally, what usually happens to them? And what is the the reason behind that they couldn't
1: make it to to the next stage? So the, the reason they don't make it, to answer that first question, is that it turns out the market doesn't want what they're offering. So, for example, or, or there's some issue in the team. So if, I don't think anybody would mind me. Um, I'll, I'll talk specifics and, and take a risk on that. I don't have permission from the people involved, but I don't think they'll mind. Um, Nick Vandenplog, for example, created a great business called Doable Chinese, which is a Chrome browser extension that substitutes Chinese characters for words in, in an English text that you're reading. Yep. Um, and, and therefore and, and it learns whether or not you recognise characters. It's a fun way to learn Chinese characters, read Chinese characters. Now, there were some issues, Nick's uh, business partner had some personal issues that meant he had to withdraw from the business. So Nick has put that business on ice for the moment and went to join one of our other startups, Clinify, um, as a coder, and is, and is contributing to that business. Um, similarly, we have a business, OberTech, which I, th- I think Remy will probably um, be happy to go public in the next few weeks and talk about how she's looked at the market opportunity for what she was trying to do, it wasn't going to work, so she's joining Vault Dragon. So, what we're finding in our teams is that the the bonds that are built between people are so strong that if someone's idea doesn't work out, you're going to get a job and your talent's going to be recycled but anyway isn't into that another good, team. Is, isn't that
0: a good sign? Because that's I think it's a fantastic that, sign. We haven't had that situation happening in, at least I looked at the Southeast Asia ecosystem, where that a group of people who didn't work out joining another group to make it stronger. Bigger. Yeah, yeah. So I think JFDA is actually doing. we actually beginning to see signs of that.
1: Or we ultimately think it's probably the most valuable thing that we do. You know, at the end of the day, the methodology we teach is all open source that could easily be replicated. But the community is really hard to replicate. The fact that we create trust between people and we say to people when they come through the door here. Look, there is no shortage of capital in this country, um, and uh, the the guy over there that you might think you're competing with, actually in two years' time, you might be in business together. So be nice to each other, you know? By all means compete, like sports, you know, good, good sports people, but at the end of the day, it's about creating awesome teams. And the quicker we can explore together, the quicker we can learn to trust each other, the quicker we can find out where value lies and exploit it. So it, to me, that's that is the valuable thing that we do. is why we have put so much energy into you know our open house events every Friday six o'clock we open the doors and a random group of between 50 and 200 people shows up it costs us quite a lot of energy to do that we've done over 150 180 of those events now but we have brought together thousands probably I haven't added it up but probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people and I know out of those relationships that companies have formed that investments have happened and we believe that what goes around comes around um, and ultimately, that's the value we're we're adding to the ecosystem. Mm. So I guess the
0: JFBI is I never see it as a Singapore incubator. I always see it as an Asia incubator. Because truth be told, disclosure, hmm. I'm a mentor from JFBI. You are. I've seen. I've seen. Respected. I've seen. I've seen very interesting startups from India. A company called Our Health Me, mm-hmm. um, Kotoki, I think mm-hmm. from Philippines. So you actually do go very wide. I think the sourcing part is particularly challenging for Definitely. for you and me because you have to travel across yep. the region. What what do you see? Is there some sort of difference in terms of the type of problems that they are looking at? Because sometimes, because I, I guess the way I tend to. Sometimes I'm being very sarcastic is that sometimes I see a lot of Singaporean teams are trying to solve what I call first world problems. And first world problems just means that they're problems that are not meant to be solved. Mm. Where I actually see in your the teams that come from emerging countries, they seem to have a much
1: more real and immediate need. Yeah, we really try and emphasize that. We say that we're in Asia for Asia. Um, and I think you mentioned our health mate. I think that's a fascinating case yes. study. So what happened there is um, Abhinav came to us with an idea for a fitness tracking thing based on mobile phones and he and and his team were a great team but we said to them, you know what guys, this idea just sucks, there's Fitbit and everything else out there, there's no point in doing another fitness tracker thing. Tell us about you, what is it that makes you unique and he told us this amazing story about how he'd been sending back money to his family for their healthcare, like a good Asian boy for for filial piety, all that stuff. And uh, one day his mother phoned up and said, Dad's in the operating room, he's had a heart attack, you've got to come quickly. So his dad was okay, he survived the heart attack. But then afterwards, when he looked in the bank account, all the money he'd been sending for the last 10 years was still in the bank account. And he said to his dad, you know, I was sending this for checkups so that you didn't have to get to the situation. Why didn't you spend the money? And of course, well, I was saving it for the grandchildren, you know, that, <laughs> and so, I'm very I'm Asian. Very Asian, yeah. And I was not even married. Um, so we. Yeah, you know, he, he said he. We asked around his friends, and he realised this was an incredibly common problem. You had non-resident Indians who were sending back huge quantities of money, in and I billions of dollars was going back for healthcare, but it wasn't being spent on healthcare. So the app he created, our Health Mate, lets you remotely pay for your family's healthcare and get the results back from the doctors, the dieticians, the physiotherapists, whatever, so that the guilt you feel as an adult child. Is assuaged. You're in. You're managing your family's health, and you know that the money is being spent. Of course, doctors love this. There's a hundred percent sign-up rate. That's right. <laughs> from zero to two thousand doctors in in like six months. Uh, Seven hundred hospitals, fifty cities in India. Funnily enough, when doctors say to their patients, "And hey, have you heard of this thing, our Health Mate? Blah, blah, blah 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 Actually, there's an eighty percent sign-up rate there too. It's a fantastic business. It charges a a subscription and there's a remittance fee. That's right. So it's a business that grows very much out of the way, and I can say this as a new Asian, uh, the way we Asians live our lives today. It grows out of the family structures that are here. And that's the kind of stuff we want to do it seems to us that there's no point at all in doing, you know, mobile phone based laundry concierge services in Asia because we've all got helpers, domestic helpers at home. <laughs> That's right. It's <laughs> interesting. So interesting
0: because when when they came to me and tell me about the idea, there was also a large group of overseas Indian expats living out and they typically want to monitor things back home. Yep. So It was a, it was an immediate when I discuss it with friends, I say that's an immediate need yeah. rather, than, rather than just
1: trying to solve problems that are not. And that's what's so interesting to me about that business is once you have the trust of a family, of course because of the nature of our HealthMate in the database now, they've mapped out the whole of each family. They know who are the brothers and sisters who are contributing, who are the parents, where did they live, what are their medical issues, whatever. There's some, there are opportunities to sell medical insurance, all kinds of products based on that relationship of trust. So I find, to me, that's a fantastic model of the kind of thing we want to do, because it's, it's a way, ultimately, of disrupting the healthcare industry, of disrupting the medical insurance industry, but doing it through the back door in a way that, a, that an insurance company would never think of, in the way that a healthcare provider would never think of, um, and a startup, you know, on their own was able to do that, and I find that hugely inspiring. Yeah,
0: that's the part that I actually enjoyed mentoring JFDI, because I, I see the diversity, and it kind of takes me to a wider scale mm. about the kind of problems that mm. in in the other economies around us. And I think that's where you can actually find the real problems. But as that much, you're also ha- uh, facing challenges too. Um, in each of the local countries, for example, there are local in- incubators. I think Indonesia is the market that we talk about the most because it has a large market, it's part of the brick. Brazil, Russia, yeah. India, yeah. China, but now they add another icon, Indonesia, with 272 million population. So there are competitors like Merabute, there may be Ideal sauce in Philippines, I think Thailand also have its own. Do you see local incubators, what do you see in them? Do you collaborate with them? or at the same time, also I think it's not so much of a, a com- competition. I think that you, you offer very
1: different perspectives to the issue. How do you see that? It is Checking. about offering different things, but also uh, working together to build confidence. You know, One of the challenges we all face across the region is that you can still make very good money as a family office here in, in, in Asia by buying oil palm and shopping malls. You know, yep. <laughs> and If you milk your oil palm every year for a crop and you milk your tenants in the shopping mall every month for rent you get a good steady rent and you've got a thing that you can sell easily as an asset. For many traditional investors in Asia the challenge is if you invest in tech, you know, it'll be what, three, four years until the thing's really making money. And then what have I really invested in anyway? It feels very intangible to the old taukes and, you know, who, who actually have the hands on the money. So especially at this stage in the development of the ecosystem, to me, it feels like anybody's success is everybody's success. I love it when another incubators or accelerators uh, startups do well, because that makes it easier for us to raise money for our startups. It builds confidence in the investor community. So in that sense, there's absolutely no competition. I think we are positioning ourselves as uh, being a Pan-Asia accelerator. Most of the uh, incubators and accelerators in the region are are focused on their home markets, particularly the ones, for example, that are linked to local telcos. What I would say to a team is if you're doing something that's mainly about the Philippines, for example, then you, you would be... Um, it would be a very good decision to go with a local telco-funded incubator because those guys could give you access to huge numbers of local customers. But if you want to go regional, it might be more of a problem because other investors outside the region don't necessarily want a corporate in the, on, on the share register as, as an early investor, um, and the opportunities to, to reach out regionally might be, might be less. So it's about specialisation. You know, In the 1950s, I think the first venture capitalists invested in everything from retail to technology to whatever and then over time they all differentiated and they've all got their specializations now. And I think that's going to happen more and more with accelerators. So we're offering something complementary, um, and it's a big pool of talent. You know, there's a, there's a billion people all coming online all around us. There's a lot of talent out there. My only regret at the moment is it's, it's a confusing time for startups. And, and, I, and, and unfortunately there are some unethical players in the market, you know we hear a lot from Indian startups for example that they, uh, there's a lot of mistrust of, of some of the local incubators and so called accelerators there, people taking outrageous amounts of equity, people providing no support. Basically, real estate plays. The most typical thing is it's a landlord with an old building that they can't do anything with. And they think, oh, I know, I'll stick some startups in and take 60% of their equity. And, you know, and then I'll send my friend in who used to be a bank manager to give them some advice. And that's a disappointing result. So there there are some players in the market who are not behaving ethically. But, that, but they will be found out, you know, that, will, that will shake itself out. And given
0: the kind of ways of people with all the tech publications, online, mm. social media, this get found out right very yeah, easily. Yeah, I've yeah. already seen cases yeah. of that in Hong Kong recently. Yeah. People were outing here yeah. and there. So it's becoming more and more common. But I, think I, I thought the question, that the, there's something that you pointed out just a few moments ago about telco, which I think goes to this question about corporations Mm, mm. and there are corporations now focusing on building accelerators and I'm sure you have also worked with some of these corporations. Mm. Do you see that corporate accelerators actually working, given that, I mean, I think there are two kinds of, I mean, me sitting over on the other side now, what typically happens is that the day-to-day, we have the day-to-day business to run and sometimes we do have ideas. But if we were to try to implement those ideas within, we don't have the budget. So the only way to be able to facilitate something more disruptive was to basically shift it out and hide it somewhere, or what Clayton Christensen said, just throw them somewhere else, don't think about it, let them run by themselves, just give them funding, give them the infrastructure, and then try to bring it in.
1: How do you see that playing out? Well, it's it's really interesting. I, I asked someone much more... Knowledgeable than me yesterday, again, Curtis Carlson running SRA International. The guy's got two Emmy Awards, he invented HDTV, all kinds of stuff. And I asked him at this event: is it ever possible to marry the access to capital and the access to markets that large corporations have with the efficient way that startups deploy risk capital um, and the rapid, the rapid agility that they can offer? And he's and he laughed and he said, the best thing you can do is keep them well apart. <laughs> so his view was that you know, a long distance relationship is the only one that's going to work. Now my own view, I mean, we, we are very grateful to Singtel Innovate, Singtel's corporate um, venture arm, uh, who sponsored us in our first year which was very helpful and, and, um, and Edgar at Hardless who runs that fund has been very open, as I have, talking in public about how it was a challenging relationship. We're great friends and we still work together. But the work, what it revealed to both of us, was the huge difference in cultures between a large corporation and and startups, and it's not just about wearing t-shirts and shorts and sort of. Yep, yeah, and they also try to impose their corporate culture towards you as well. Well, they have to because I think they, and there's a, but there's a really profound thing here, mm-hmm. and the risk of sounding a bit, you know, chain, There's a, there's an there's, there's a wonderful consultant based in, um, used to be based in this building called Dave Snowden, and um, he put forward a picture of the world where he said some things in life are predictable and ordered like boiling an egg or being a lawyer actually being a lawyer you're mostly following a set of rules most of the time and if you mess up and the 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 court case is all about did you follow best practice or not and if you're working in a large corporation or government and you're spending someone else's money you've got to be held accountable you've got to work by what the academics call causal logic you've got to be able to justify the decisions that you made so it's not just that people aren't sort of wickedly imposing corporate culture, that is their job. And the problem with doing entrepreneurship is that we're dealing with, and, and, and the corporate culture works extremely well. I mean, through the 20th century, we have incredibly cheap goods and services produced on a great scale. And if you go and do an MBA, they'll, they'll train you for that world. It's a world largely of known unknowns. You know, when you when you when you build a new business as a corporation, you do lots of analysis, lots of research, and you try and eliminate the unknown unknowns and you and you're venturing, you're more or less doing incremental innovation, adding a little bit to what you've already got. Now, unfortunately there's a lot of things in life that aren't like that. And Dave Snowden, the consultant I mentioned earlier, pointed out that things like having a happy marriage, you know, there are no rules for having a happy marriage. There's some general principles don't screw around and and decide whether you want children before you get married or not for example but even if you get those things sorted out you're not guaranteed a happy marriage and the same is true of entrepreneurship you know there are some general principles it's a good idea usually to start charging as soon as you can for the service you offer but Google didn't and neither did Facebook and neither did Twitter so there are always exceptions to these rules and there are only a series of general patterns and I think one of the challenging things about trying to do entrepreneurship, where you're exploring unknown unknowns, is that that's incompatible with accountability for someone else's money. It's and
0: interesting you point this out. I, I was trying to explain to a couple of people recently about this, so um, the the way how corporates look at valuation when it comes to maybe an acquisition or investment is more of a science versus when they when they try to try to bring that same skill downstream to evaluate a startup, yeah. they get frightened about valuation, value yeah. because of the and, and yeah. the disruptive they couldn't find to attribute a value in that disruptiveness. Yeah. And because of that it makes it very difficult. It's not their yeah. fault. Because if you in and, and it's quite funny, I actually made me give me this comment and said, if I'm a VC, I would have done this, but because I, you're in a corporate position, so therefore you can't do this. Yeah. So, I see that there is this piece, but, but do you, do you, have you sort of looked at models, do you think that this is a possible still a possible experiment to make?
1: Well, on this cultures thing, I think there's, a, there's a, one of my heroes is an American researcher called Sarah Sarasvathy, and uh, there's a link, anyone who's interested in this, I recommend looking at effectuation.org. Um, she wrote her PhD about 10 years ago, and what she did is she analysed... I think it was 50 or 80, very successful entrepreneurs, she put them through a, a day-long process where she got them to make a series of decisions, she's a psychologist, and she looked at the way they made those decisions, and she realized that they make decisions in a completely different way from MBAs, corporate people, oh, that's and, interesting. It's, and, and she, they, they use what she calls effectual logic, and what it boils down to is five principles, and I'll see if I can remember them, because I think they, anyone who's been an entrepreneur will, will resonate with these. The first one is what she calls uh, the affordable loss principle. In other words, you need to say yourself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself $10,000, three months of my life, whatever it is. I'm just gonna give it that, see what I can do. If I can't achieve it, the worst that's gonna happen is I'll have lost three months or $10,000. And then after that, you stop worrying about the downside and you just focus on the upside. Right. right. So that's number one. Yep. That's how an entrepreneur thinks. Yeah. Yep. Second thing that entrepreneurs do is what she calls the patchwork quilt principle. In other words, Often in sort of MBA logic and in business school, you'll hear words like, we're going to go in and dominate this market, exploit, you know, all those sorts of words. Entrepreneurs don't say that. Entrepreneurs look at what's already there like a patchwork quilt, and they just add their bit onto it. Rather than trying to control and own and dominate the whole thing, they just add stuff on, which is the whole essence of Web 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Third thing is that uh, entrepreneurs, she calls it the bird in hand principle from that expression "a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. In other words, what you've got and where you are now is far more important than any fantasy you might have about the future. So instead of doing sort of blue ocean strategy where you sit there and think as a corporation what markets might we move into, entrepreneurs wake up every morning and say, who do I know? Who can I phone? What can I do today? What's possible? What are my options now? Fourth thing that they do um, is what she calls um, the pilot in the plane principle. As a, um, if any of, you, any of you listening has ever flown a light aircraft or been in a very small aircraft, one of the interesting things is that there are air traffic control people giving you advice. But as the pilot of the plane, you are in control. It is your job to land safely and you're responsible for the lives of everybody on board. And that is really, really important. You know, the control is more important than a goal. I mentioned earlier this, I, this vision of a, a little ship setting out on the sea looking for where value lies. Your job as an entrepreneur is to sail that little ship, not sink, not run out of food and water, and not kill each other. So long as you stay in control, you may or may not find a treasure island. But the worst that's gonna happen is you'll lose what you started out with and yeah. come home safe. You reminded me of a story, but I want to <laughs> let you have the
0: last principle
1: first before and I tell the story. And move on. The, the last principle is what she called the lemonade stand principle. You know, if someone gives you lemons, you might think, well, these are a bit sour, but make lemonade. <laughs> and to me that's what pivoting is all about. You know, if you go out to the market and you think you're gonna sell a game to help kids with diabetes manage their diabetes better and you find out from the mums of kids with diabetes that actually they want XYZ, well go and do that <laughs> because yeah. that's the business. So that's, it's those five principles and if you think of those are quite counterintuitive, so effectuation.org is a fascinating analysis and to come right back to your original question which is how can corporations and startups work together, I uh, have a theory, my observation is that there are sort of five phases that corporations move through in their relationship with startups. The first phase is just complete indifference. We're a large corporation. We've been here, you know, we are here, we dominate, and they just ignore startups. Phase two is, my CEO has been reading an in-flight magazine about these startup things, and they sound very interesting. So we should set up a fund uh, or a competition, and then these startup people can just give us their ideas for free because we are a very large corporation and everyone loves us, right? So okay. that's phase Stage two. two. Yeah. Stage three is, uh, actually, that didn't work. Uh, Maybe we need to sort of outsource this to some kind of, you know, group of people, some kind of outsourced accelerator thing. And our staff need to be involved as mentors, even though they've never actually run a startup in their lives. <laughs> okay. So phase four then is all the middle managers say, this is great fun, this is much more fun than working in a large corporation. And all these people do is wear t-shirts and shorts, we could be stuck, we could do this ourselves. So then stage four is to bring the accelerator and the incubator in-house, at which point after, it takes a couple of years before people realise that doesn't work. And then stage five is the humility. Stage five is... You also it, attract some of these managers over and then they, well, they, talk, five, they, they caught know. the start- startup. Uh. <laughs> stage five, you realise actually this is a separate culture, it's completely different. You know, I had a conversation with a telco the other day, and the telco said to me, hmm, three or four years ago we thought we could be the bank in everyone's pocket, we thought we could be the travel agent in everyone's pocket, and now you know, we look at these phones, and there's like a phone, and there's the hardware, and that's quite cool, and there's embedded software. And then there's connectivity, we do that really well. Um, and then the stage, you know, then there's sort of the cloud services and actually we don't do that very well. You know, actually we're a really good pipe. That's what we are as a telco, we should stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and they come right back, you know. But it takes a so I don't know. And my hunch is that in five years' time, it will it will be really obvious how corporations and startups can engage. At the moment, it seems very healthy to me that we've got all of these different environments and different arrangements being set up. People are trying stuff in house. People are trying sponsored all sorts of arrangements. Some of them will work. Some of them won't. And maybe it'll be context dependent. Maybe what works in some industries will work and not here. You know, we'll learn. Yes, when you were talking about the plain. Principle
0: about controlling hmm. of the plane. It reminded me of an advice given from me from a friend who just passed away. Um, for those who you do not, you Patrick do not Turner. know Patrick Turner. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah, And he was a professor in INSEAD Business School, hmm. and I think that um, his legacy will be some of the very successful startups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Property Guru, Red Mart, those which are now in the elephant. We call it the elephants in, in yeah. Southeast Asia, which is a hundred million and above startups, and. Um, In the last days of Chalkbot, which was my company before we went bus, I went to him for an advice. Hmm. And his advice to me was, there is this over optimism of entrepreneurs. Hmm. And actually he sat me down, took me through the thing. And at the end of it, he gave me this advice. You're actually controlling this plane. The best thing you can now do is to make sure that you get it down to safe landing because you are crashing. And, and, and basically, the advice was basically do everything, but do
1: a graceful shutdown. Totally. and Grace, and then not. but what you've done, Bernard, which is what I admire, is you have now taken that talent and that experience and you're now working with a large corporation to try and help them be more entrepreneurial. The talent and the experience is not wasted. It was painful for you to learn at the time. But you know, losing weight is painful. Learning anything that's valuable is painful. And and what, what I admire is the fact that you've not given up and you were very public about doing a post-mortem on, on shortboard and sharing what didn't work, you know, and I think we
0: need much, much more of that. Yes, I think we're actually we are actually getting more companies actually coming up and say they're just going to liquidate yeah. without it's even... Okay. Yeah, we, I mean, there are recent case of bubble motion as yeah, well. Yeah. But they didn't liquidate, they ended up being acquired. Yeah, so the stories were actually... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think also that the tech press in Asia needs to buff up a bit more. Yeah, yeah. actually. That so that there was, there was that. Moving forward, where okay, we, I mean I we like to hear stories about startups mm. and people I, I, I think to a certain extent people rarely talk about the accelerators to that where they also have their vision. Where do you see JFDI? Well, Ming to a certain extent, I'm probably gonna get him on a show at some point to talk about encryption mm. and all the crazy ideas that he has. Where do you see JFDI going in the next five years?
1: I think um, I'm still inspired every morning, literally every morning, by the thing that got Meng and I going in the first place. You you know, for the 10 years ago, we didn't understand what entrepreneurs do, this effectual logic that we talked about just didn't, people had not done that research. It seemed like entrepreneurship was something you were either born with or not and the fact that we can teach entrepreneurship now is hugely inspiring to me and I think that the core function of, of teaching entrepreneurship is something that I'm very dedicated to, I, I come from a family of teachers, I nearly became one at one point. So teaching entrepreneurship will stay at the core of what we do. Structured innovation, again I'm really excited by the fact that it's, innovation is not random. And I think again 10 years ago people thought Steve Jobs or people like him were kind of these gods who would just sort of reach up into the sky and pull down the iPhone from nowhere. Now that we know that there is a structure, sure, some people are brilliant, however, Steve Jobs was brilliant, but you, again, we can teach those innovation processes. We can help people to direct their creative energy, the ones who want to be realistic. We can help people be disciplined and move forward. So I think that in broad terms, JFDI will continue as we are, which is working with people who want to succeed. The, the challenge I, had, I see for us at the moment is that there's a lot of what... Um, uh, John Youngfolk calls entrepreneur porn out right. there. <laughs> There's a lot of fantasy. There's almost a sense for that you know people are entitled to be an entrepreneur, and that's a bit like saying I'm entitled to play for Manchester United. You know you're not. Many of us have fantasies about being a great sports person, a great rock star, or whatever. The reality is most of us are not great guitarists, however much of a hero we might think we are in our bedrooms and all the rest of it. And most of us are actually not great entrepreneurs. Now we can be competent entrepreneurs, and we can be taught to be competent entrepreneurs, but it requires discipline. And I think that it, the is still out on whether we can you know, survive teaching, uh, disciplined entrepreneurship to um, here, you know, here in Asia, there's, for example, in Singapore, one of the challenges to be honest is that the government is so very generous for all the good reasons in giving out cash left, right and centre through grants without the kind of discipline around the way that money is deployed and without the support of mentors. That we've got a lot of companies which are going to fail spectacularly and we've got people who are wasting their lives we've got people who are running lots of zombie businesses for two three years until yep. the plant runs out and then they're going to fall very hard at the end of that they're going to lose face their families are going to say oh this entrepreneurship thing is crap it doesn't work here in singapore or asia we shouldn't be doing this and i i fear that so i think that there's going to be some challenges ahead there in terms of the model that we have um we are uh you talked earlier on about you know do we go downstream or upstream so do we go upstream and work with earlier stage businesses or do we go downstream and work with later ones um We think that we've got to go upstream in the sense that we've we've got to scale out our support for people um One of the things that we have learned is that uh people become great entrepreneurs. I had a great conversation the other day with um U, who um is at mig me. Mm-hmm. And Gene used to train, he was a special forces um, commando in the US. Yeah. And I asked him on day one of basic military training, can you tell who are the commandos, who are going to be the ace soldiers? And he said, absolutely not. Not only do we not have the capacity to tell who are going to be the great soldiers, but also they don't know themselves. The process of becoming a soldier involves people buying in steadily into the physical, emotional, you know, whatever, buying that you have to do to become a commando. And I think entrepreneurship is the same. You know, we had a shock the day we look, we look back, we score all the startups that have ever applied to us. And we did some research. We looked at the ones that have gone through, it's now 38 startups. And there's something like 1,200 teams that have applied to us that, that we rejected. 60% of the teams that have gone through have got funded, seed funded. 5% of the ones that didn't go through got funded. Now, does that mean we're selecting people in a great way or does it mean we're training them? I don't know. The shock came when we looked at the scores that we'd given the teams, the 38 teams that we have taken, and tried to compare that with the results they've ultimately achieved, and there is no correlation. Oh. <laughs> and at first I thought, oh my goodness. So I went for a beer with my friend, Sergei Netosini, who's a professor at INSEAD. Uh, and I said, Sergei, what's happening here? And he laughed and laughed. And he said, I've done exactly the same thing with INSEAD PhD students since 1972. If you look at the way we scored them when they came in as PhD students and their ultimate success as academics there is no correlation in other words you cannot take a snapshot you know today and say this team this person is going to be a great entrepreneur they they grow over time so again i come back to this idea of a community that i think the most valuable thing that we can do is to create a community where people say that entrepreneurship is a lifestyle choice the chances of your first business working out are absolutely minuscule. The important thing is that you have a supportive community around you so that when it doesn't work out, like it's going to most of the time, you are supported and have another go, maybe in a different structure and another team. And slowly, the people who are successful over a period, of two or three years, learn how to become entrepreneurs. It's not like we can just train them all in one go and then instantly they're there. So I think that we, need, we, do, need, we do need to move upstream to provide more basic, entrepreneur education, and we need to do that in a distributed MOOC, affordable, low-cost way. We're talking with some great partners about supporting that. I think then there is a question here in Singapore, for example, about do we move to give post-seed support? My own view is that um, the traditional model of venture capital, where you have a couple of general partners and run around um, juniors, you raise a load of money from rich people, um, you find yourself some deal flows, stick the cash in, and very occasionally turn up to board meetings and basically add no value beyond the money. I don't think that's going to work. I was talking to someone very I won't mention my name someone very senior in the industry here the other day, and his view was that there is a massive massive crash coming at the, the post seed level in, in Asia. We have so much expectation, so much seed stage money has gone into a load of companies that are just not ready to scale a bunch of companies who don't understand that their job is to get ready for disciplined series A investment where they've got to understand the business model, they've got to have the metrics, they've got to be able to scale their product or service to a global market those businesses are just not there, and I think you know we're sitting in a building talking now where there's over a billion dollars of funding under it's management. Yes, one point five
0: billion and, dollars, and how sitting do you, in block yeah, seventy-one.
1: How do you deploy that into startup companies? You know, yeah. How do you? Uh, and
0: I was surprised at the value actually. Yeah. It's and 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 the more interesting part of the stats is that um, excluding property investment right, right. is actually twenty four point seven billion deployed in Singapore. <laughs> and that 1.7 that you just mentioned is deployed right here where we are sitting.
1: It's, it's astonishing. And how and how and how is that going to pan out? Because there's going to be... What I hope is that we don't have an enormous disappointment on an individual human level. There you are know, lots of entrepreneurs who give up. I hope that we don't have a disappointment by investors and LPs saying, this doesn't work, I'm pulling out. Asia can't do innovation. We should leave it to Silicon Valley. That would be a huge disappointment to me. So I'm hoping that through that JFDI can hang in there through a muddy period. And the next year or two is going to be very muddy. It's confusing for startups. It's confusing all of the promises that are being made. They're convincing themselves half the time, reading too much TechCrunch, that they you know that that, that uh, they're entitled to you know ridiculous mm-hmm. valuations and ridiculous um, guarantees of success. And we've also got a load of of early stage funds, often run by quite inexperienced investors actually, which are going to find it very hard to find quality deal flow and which are going to find it a shock when they realise that they have to roll up their sleeves and become much more hands-on and supportive for these startups. They can't just you know, ruck up every three or four months to a board meeting and then get angry down the phone when the company doesn't hit the numbers, that's just not going to work. Um, so I think we're still we're still answering that question okay um, where should we go we'll
0: probably revisit this sometime soon well where 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 do the our audience find you and well you definitely can i know the jfdi twitter is at jfdi asia
1: that's correct um and they can also anyone please email us if you're interested in contacting us in any way info at jfdi.asia. Um, and we have open house every Friday if you're here in Singapore. Uh, I know that all your listeners are not necessarily in Singapore, but for anyone who is uh, passing through, Sat every Friday, six o'clock, um, except for public holidays, we are always open. You're always welcome.
0: Oh, I know the Twitter account for Hugh is Hugh Mason, right? Correct.
1: H U G H
0: M A S O N. Yes, you should follow him. He does tweet out good stuff too. Thank you. Yeah. I'm a follower.
1: And thank you very much for the opportunity to share this. It's. I value the opportunity to discuss it actually because we are learning. We don't claim to have all the answers at all. What Meng and I do claim to do is to try and be as honest and open as we can. You know, people, We could not be doing what we're doing without everyone having been open with us. We have open source in our souls mm. and uh, we will share, I guarantee, I make a public pledge now, we will share what doesn't work as much as what does um, because that way we can all learn quicker.
0: Yep and you can definitely find us here at analyze with an S Asia and you can follow me at blongcw@long.com you can also please drop to our iTunes account give us your review feedback 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 which is what I'm trying to get at the moment um of course we have just recently released the transcripts that's the first surprise so we will be releasing more of these transcripts and we will try to start doing something more interesting with the podcast Um, So we will see you next. Thank you for being here, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Thank you.